This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Long, and before we get started here, I'm eager to welcome Peterson Toscano to the show. But before we do that, I just have two quick announcements. First, if you've listened to this show for any amount of time, you probably know who Matt Langston is. He comes onto this show quite regularly to talk about deconstruction, the life of a musician. He's a great friend, and we've had lots of awesome conversations on this show. Well, he has his own podcast. He is the front man of the band Eleventy Seven, and his podcast is called Eleventy Life, and it's fantastic. If you want a show about the life of a musician, and he interviews lots of other artists and musicians and creators, I highly recommend you go check that out. Also, there is a lot of construction work going on outside my house right now. So if you hear rumbling and trucks and screeching from outside, I'm sorry about that. I have literally put mattresses in my windows to keep the sound out. And this is actually an awesome opportunity to let you all know that my Patreon is now live. So if you want to donate money on a monthly basis to my show and to my blog, you can now do that. And help me upgrade to better sound equipment and to a better studio environment so you don't have to listen to construction work in the background. For $5 a month, you will have access to a second podcast, the House of Heretics podcast, where me and Justin talk about faith and doubt and lots of things that I usually edit out for the public show. If you want an unedited show, go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long, where you can get that show for just $5 a month. And I would so deeply appreciate that if you were to help me out. All right. Well, with that out of the way, I am very eager to introduce Peterson Toscano. He is a Quaker, an LGBT activist, an actor, a biblical scholar, a climate activist. He does all kinds of really amazing stuff. So Peterson, thank you for joining me. Hey, it is absolutely awesome to be here, Stephen. So you've actually been on my radar for like well over 10 years. You were really influential on me years ago when I was like in my late teens, early 20s. I'm 30 now. And so this was well over 10 years ago. And your story was like all over the news, all over YouTube. You were going to all these conferences and all these talk shows talking about your harmful experiences in in the ex-gay world, in ex-gay therapy. And you were really crucial for me eventually leaving the ex-gay world because you were really one of the only people out there at the time voicing your criticism of the ex-gay world and really honestly talking about the ways it it hurt you and damaged you. And so it's kind of amazing now that you're on my show and we just ran into each other on Twitter and, and started talking on Twitter and now here you are. But it's kind of amazing that you've had this influence on my life over the past 10 plus years. And so it's really awesome to finally get to talk to you. That is really beautiful to hear. You know, it's it was it was a strange time, that time in history, because most people saw conversion therapy as a joke. And so as a result, no one took seriously how dangerous it was. And it was just a handful of us, really, maybe five people at most that were stepping up to tell our stories. And and then lots of people told their stories, but there was a group of people said, you know, we need to get these out there. We need to put YouTube videos up. And it was very intentional. We need to get in the media because we needed to pivot this so that people didn't think, oh my gosh, look at these stupid people. They think they could become straight. Oh my gosh, how how's dumb? And we're like, no, 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 that is not it. And then even like there were gay activists who were very earnestly against conversion therapy, but they didn't have all the facts right, right? Because they were like, they hate us, they hate the gays. And, you know, and, and I'm like, nah, it's more complicated than that. They actually think they love the gays, and they're trying to help us. Yeah. And so, so we knew that there was power in testimony in telling our stories. And in particularly the thing that you picked up on, it's not that it doesn't work. It's not that it's silly and and futile. It's that it is dangerous. It is damaging. It causes damage, psychological, emotional, relationship, spiritual harm. 
Yeah. And so now, you know, here we are over 10 years later having this conversation. And I think you can count me as part of your legacy as as you and those like three, you know, four or five other people posting videos to YouTube. I think I would have eventually left, but I think it would have been a lot bloodier and a lot longer. And so I'm really, really, really grateful for what you've for what you've done. And of course, you've done all the other work that I've mentioned at the top of the show. You're a climate activist. You're a Quaker. You're an LGBT activist. You're an actor. You have a film called Transfigurations, which is really, really awesome. And uh, hopefully, you know, at some point we'll be able to get to all of that. But I really want to focus in on the ex-gay stuff right now. Just kind of to back up for our listeners, uh, because a lot of people might not actually know what ex-gay therapy is. Could you give kind of a definition of what ex-gay therapy even is sure it's basically the ultimate sexual makeover (laughs) that's one way to put it yeah yeah so i mean the basic premise was there you know there are these notions in the world in the church lots of places that there's something wrong unnatural evil about being gay and therefore one shouldn't be gay and if someone is gay well then they should become cured somehow. And there are multiple methods that people use to try to cure people from being gay. I mean, it goes way back. Nazi Germany had a conversion therapy program in the concentration camps where they did experiments on gay men trying to make them straight. Hmm. In the world of psychology, you know, up until the 70s, you can go to a trained therapist to get conversion therapy Hmm. to try to cure you from being from being gay. And then once it became declassified as a mental illness to be gay, that's when the church started taking it up in earnest, saying, you know, you can be healed by the power of Jesus, and it might be through prayer, it might be through casting out demons, it might be through uh, talk therapy or biblical counseling or support groups or 12-step groups. They had all sorts of methods to do it, but basically the premise was, it's not right to be gay, you shouldn't be gay, and you can be fixed. And the danger came when, of course, when you weren't fixed when you weren't straight, when in fact your desires for people of the same sex increased as you suppress them, then they turned it on the the person and said, well, it's because you don't want it badly enough. You're not trying it hard enough. Yeah. Yeah. And my experience of ex-gay therapy was, was one of the most damaging things that I lived through in high school and college. It's exactly what you said. When you realize that you aren't actually changing and then the fear and disappointment and despair that comes as a result of that. And then the gaslighting on the part of the church saying this is actually your fault or you haven't done this hard enough. You didn't do the right thing, the right spiritual practice. And if you just try it from a different angle or from a different technique, then it will work. And these, the ultimate result of this is that your entire life, your passions, your career, your focus, your joys, they're all on hold until this divine touch from God comes down so that suddenly you can come out of this cryogenic freeze of homosexuality that has put you in in this perpetual state of amber where you can't move, you can't move forward, you can't fully live, and you're just in that state indefinitely just waiting for the touch of God to come down. And the result of that is horrific. The consequences of that are just absolutely horrific. I'm wondering if you could share some of your experiences in the ex-gay world. What led you into the ex-gay world and what happened there? I'm happy to do that. And But before I do, before I forget, there's an excellent resource out there that we created. It's a website called beyondxgay.com. Yes. Beyondxgay.com. And it's for ex-gay survivors. And there are lots of articles there. And there's one that I wrote, Ex-Gay Harm, Let Me Count the Ways. And you mentioned one that people don't often think about the career harm, the harm that it does to our careers, our vocations, our desires for professions, because so many of us spend so much time and energy trying to be straight that we didn't put it into our careers, or we stopped a career that we thought was too gay, or we were told was unhealthy for us. And that's another way that, you know, our lives got upended. Some of us allowed it to be upended, others were coerced, and for many of us, it was a combination of the two. Yeah, absolutely. And in my case, I started conversion therapy, 
when I was 17. I didn't know it was conversion therapy at the time or ex-gay ministries. It didn't have those terms. But like many people, it started in the church. I was uh, ro- I was raised Roman Catholic, but I started attending a born-again Bible church not far from my home. And I told the pastor, I'm struggling with these feelings. He says, oh, you're struggling with homosexuality. No one would ever call me gay, right, in the church. It wasn't that you were gay. You were struggling with this thing. It's not about identity. It's about behavior. And he began to try to displace all of the gayness with God by having me memorize the Bible and do Bible study and go to church, all these sort of things. And a lot of the conversion therapy is about that. It's about Christian discipleship in some ways, but it's a Christian discipleship that isn't necessarily designed to get you closer to Jesus, but to destroy this gay part of you, which is not just your sexual desire, but it's also your personality, your creativity, so many things. And that got me on a trajectory. This was in the um, the early 80s, actually. And this was was when conversion therapy, ex-gay ministries, and Exodus in particular, that's when they really started taking off. They'd been lingering for about 10 years, but once the HIV-AIDS crisis hit, suddenly there was this strong desire for many gay men to not be gay because they were fearing for their lives, rightfully so. So oddly enough, some of these conversion therapy places in the early 80s served as a Noah's Ark of sorts where, you know, people went to be spared from getting AIDS. Mm. And through the years, I've tried lots of different things. So I was in a support group in New York City for a number of years when I was living in New York City as a young person. I um, I went to a couple of exorcisms, believing that maybe it was demons. That's why I kept, no matter how hard I tried, I kept wanting guys. It must be demons. I uh, eventually, the most extreme thing I did was I enrolled in the Love in Action residential ex-gay program in Memphis, Tennessee, and I was there for two years. So let me pause you right there just for some backstory. The Love in Action program, for people who don't know, it was uh, run by John Smid, who I've actually come to know since he left the ex-gay world. But Love in Action is maybe one of the most notorious ex-gay groups. And, you know, of a lot of people who I've met who are ex-gay survivors, those who went through Love in Action are some of the most traumatized that I've met. Yeah, there's a a new film coming out based on the book Boy Erased. I don't know if you've heard of this memoir, but someone who went through Love in Action and uh, there's a major motion picture that's going to come out in November that uh, will have Nicole Kidman in it and a couple of other folks. But it's basically talking about his time in Love in Action. Mm. That's fantastic. I didn't know that that was happening. I'll have to watch that. Yeah, so, you know, I think of it as psychological torture dressed up in religious drag with a big smile on. And it was so thoroughly confusing because the people who run these places, they really are warm, kind, loving people. At least that's how they project. And I think they genuinely believe they are and they're trying to be. And they desperately want to help gay people who they believe would be far better off in this life and the next if we were not gay. So it it made it so very confusing because it was so cult-like and very much like being in an abusive relationship where you have this abusive partner who's beaten the snot out of you, but then turns around and talks about how much they love you and just how flawed you are. And it's partly your own fault that we're that being so mean to you. And it is definitely a way of screwing with someone's head and life. Could you describe some of the practices? What were their methods of trying to change your orientation? Every program really had a different method. And so that's why it's it's very hard when people say, oh, this is what the ex-gay movement's like, because you can have 20 programs say, we never do that. And then there's also, like, uh, one thing that we also haven't mentioned is, like, the Joseph Nicolosi route, the NARTH route, which is, like, the very formal psychology aspect of it. And I didn't go through that, and it sounds like that isn't really kind of what you went through either. For a short time, I did. Okay. But mostly, I went the more religious route. But they all have this one thing in common, for sure. They think that being gay is not natural, that something happened to you, either psychologically, spiritually, trauma-wise, to disrupt your normal development, normal being straight. And so that's where they get the idea that it's reparative therapy. They want to repair something that they believe 
is broken. And that's the sort of language they often use about being broken. And most of the people who run these things have absolutely no training whatsoever in theology, psychology, nothing like that. So they are often victims themselves of conversion therapy who then have been enlisted to become leaders. So the abused become the abusers. So I was asked by the Southern Poverty Law Center once if I thought that the ex-gay movement was um, like a hate group like, you know, white supremacist. And I said, I could see that in a way. They're like straight supremacist of a sort. (laughs) Yeah. But I think it's different in that it's a self-hate group. This is a group of people hate themselves and it just radiates out. Now, one thing I think I have found common in many of these groups is that it had a lot more to do with gender than I had imagined up front. And gender roles, yeah, the psychological route, the religious route, there was this way of being a man that needed to be pursued. And so at Love and Action and many other places, they were obsessed with the clothes we wore, the music we listened to, the activities that we liked to do, the way we talked, the way we crossed our legs. I mean, it seems so silly and campy like in the movie, but I'm a cheerleader. <laughs> but the- But that's based on a real thing. I mean, they really were crazily obsessed with helping us become straight-acting, masculine men. The great irony being that there's this gigantic subculture in, in gay culture about being masculine or, you know, the bears and the leather daddies and, you know, like these these really, really masculine, macho guys, they would fit a lot of those gender stereotypes. Yeah, except for what they do with their mouths and their butts. Yeah, you know, except <laughs> except for the whipping and the flogging and the and the chains and and whatnot. But you know, that's a that's an aside. Yeah, but it was it was gender policing, gender bullying for sure. Yeah. Uh, and so I saw a lot of that uh, sort of action. So you know, literally things like you know learning how to play basketball and other sports was you know part of the Love and Action program. It was one of our nights that we would have sports night to try to help kickstart this more athletic part of us because we were seen as sissy sissies that are, you know, we're not real men. And I'm laughing, <laughs> but it's so easy for, for, I think, people on the outside to look at that and be like, oh my God, this is fucking ridiculous and hilarious. But what I think is missed is just how, like, if you are a vulnerable kid or a vulnerable young man in that position, it's traumatizing. Well, but also I think what people overlook is that it's not like a little island this this is happening in. It's happening within a culture that insists that being male is superior to being female. Being masculine is superior to being feminine. Mm. And I think we even have to own up to it within gay culture. When you look at, you know, personal ads, grinder, and you have these guys insisting, I only want a masculine guy, no femmes. Absolutely. We, we live in a world that really is struggling to embrace gender differences and that is very much male superior and masculine superior. Absolutely. And and a lot of the shame of being gay and a lot of the fear of homosexuality is in fact the fear of women and the fear of being like a woman. And it's ultimately sexism in a way. To be gay in the minds of a lot of people is to transgress those gender boundaries, to make oneself more like a woman in their view. And That, I think, is the root of a lot of the fear. And another way that expressed itself was much of the ex-gay movement, conversion therapy movement, really was designed to save men. And although they had programs for women, for lesbians and bi women, it was really a male program to try to save these poor lost men to help them get back to their proper place in a way to regain lost power and privilege. Yeah, you know, something that I hear all the time, especially right now in like the neo-Calvinist circles and like uh, the gospel coalition and that kind of stuff is that masculinity, you know, when the men in a culture, you know, fall apart, then the culture as a whole fall apart. Do you think that was playing into that? Like if we don't save the men, if the men don't have it together, if the men aren't strong, if the men are falling to homosexuality, then the culture in general will decay 
Because I'm seeing that now, but I don't know if that was like resonant back then. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of that back then. You have to remember in the 80s, the the real threat to America wasn't terrorists, and it was no longer the Russians. It was the homosexuals. Right. I mean, the way they talked about gay men back then, if you look at the rhetoric that we were the ones that, you know, were going to destroy the fabric of society in America, we were the terrorists and the Russians of the day. Mm. And, and so that, and then of course you had AIDS added to it so that there was this other level of fear and around gays and hate crimes increased exponentially during the HIV AIDS crisis as well. So you had that, but I think that even now when you're seeing this, like this, you know, that like masculinity isn't, you know, being threatened, it really has to do with misogyny and the hatred of women Absolutely. and the devaluing of women much more than anything else. And I, and I think even as gay men, we can fall into that. And I see Absolutely. within our own tribe, lots of sexism and misogyny and trans misogyny happening all the time. I totally agree. Yeah. And that's that's something that we learned, right, from our own oppression, right? The oppressed become oppressors, and we have to unlearn that. It's not enough to just come out of the closet. It's about renewing our minds. It's about, you know, finding new books, new ideas, because we have been you know, soaked in this stuff and we turned it on ourselves for so long, but it's not that it all gets immediately eradicated the day we step out of the closet. Right. I mean, we are creatures of our culture and our culture is one of patriarchy and misogyny. And so now the gay community is kind of, it's having to examine itself and see how it, it discriminates against femininity and trans. And and I find that we're strongest and most beautiful and most interesting and powerful when we do embrace all of that in ourselves. I mean, I really fought against the sissy side of me for such a long time. I was so ashamed of it and embarrassed by it so that even when I came out, I was like, okay, I'm gay, but like, I'm not like a sissy or whatever. And I realized I am I am a sissy, and that's okay. That's Absolutely. what makes me strong and powerful. I'm not just a sissy, but I am a sissy. And and it's great when I step into those shoes. You know, I'm actually, I, I know that we're getting very far afield here, but but this is an interesting conversation. I'm really glad that you bring that up because I have been kind of on the same trajectory where I realize that I am very drawn in myself towards androgyny, towards gender fluidity. Not that I am not cisgender, I'm very much a male, but this understanding that masculinity itself is a spectrum. If gender is a spectrum, and then masculinity itself is a spectrum. And so I feel and and so I feel very much, you know, like firmly within the boy camp, but realizing that camp is huge. There is so much in that camp and and we define boy and girl in these very narrow ways and then we don't capture the the fluidity between those two camps at all and now i'm realizing well the camps themselves are gargantuan and so you know i think if work and time and money weren't against me i would be much more androgynous you know i'm very drawn to figures like eddie izzard who who are very masculine but who express this extraordinary feminism and or, or femininity i mean and and realizing you know if i had my way and if i could get away with it at work but i'm here in the south and i'm kind of afraid to but if i if i could that's what i would be that's what i feel like i am well, and I'm fortunate that I am an actor, so I get to play multiple characters and even multiple genders in in my performance, which is now a film, Transfigurations. That's exactly what I do. It's this whole exploration of gender fluidity and the gender spectrum, because in the Bible, it's not so straight cut, male and female. For one, there are eunuchs in the yes, Bible. Yes, exactly. Who are physically different from the men and women around them, and they never experienced puberty. So they're sort of seen as male and female or other. And it is so extraordinary to step into those roles and what it does for the audience, because people then start seeing their own differences and how they don't fit into a strict binary. And that's straight people too. I mean, we're all been tied up in this gender norm straight jacket 
And I think that's one of the gifts that we bring as LGBTQ people. We get to question those things. We get to step out of those roles in so many ways. And that liberates everybody. Absolutely. So, yeah, you know, you were making the point that the ex-gay therapy that you went through was much more preoccupied about this gender stuff than you expected. And that ultimately, and this was my experience as well, is that it was very preoccupied with gender roles and defending what it means to be a man and a woman. By the time I was going through the ex-gay world, John Eldridge, Wild at Heart, was the thing. And, like, everyone was, every you know about Wild at Heart, of course. I, he, I think he's kind of died in popularity now, but, oh my god, he took the world by storm, and he had this book called Wild at Heart, which is about capturing the wild masculine heart that God intends for all men. And what I went through was very much akin to that like defending that that masculinity yeah my day was more um promise keepers oh yes it's still around afterwards but they would have these huge stadium events they always were in a sports stadium of course with all these men getting emotional and wrapping their arms around each other uh but you know recommitting themselves to be you know men of god and you know it was it was amazing because it it seemed like these men wanted to be closer to other men, not necessarily in a sexual way, but we live in a society that men don't touch each other and, and as they do in other societies. They're not intimate with each other as they are in other societies. And you see that intimacy come out often in sports and on sports teams, Yes, the physical intimacy and all. But I think there's this longing for gay, straight, all sorts of men to just connect on a deep level that maybe not, but not in a sexual level all, all the time. Yeah, I, I mean, every everything you're saying is just triggering so many thoughts and memories. And I'm starting to think we might have to do more than one episode because we can just go on like this for hours. But when I was in the ex-gay world, and then after I left ex-gay, I moved from, from ex-gay to what in gay Christian lingo was side B. Side A being people who affirm that gay marriage is good, that God blesses gay sex, gay relationships in the totality of what that means and that they are morally equivalent to straight relationships. Side B being, you know what, you didn't choose to be gay, you probably can't change it, but you still have to be celibate or be married to a woman. I moved to side B because I was still trying to hold to the traditional church teachings, and uh, that destroyed me almost as much, if not more, than ex-gay, and I can Hmm. talk about that later. But one of the results of both ex-gay and side B was I could not connect to any other men. I couldn't connect to anyone of the same sex. I mean, you were unable or you were not allowed to? Both. I was I was emotionally unable to. I wanted to. I was desperate for friendship. And all the while being told, and I'm sure you got this in the ex-gay world, that somehow male friendship and male bonding was the solution. You know, one of my mentors uh, was Chad Thompson, who's actually a great guy, and I've kind of stayed in touch with him. And Chad Thompson's whole thing was if you stay connected with brothers, if you stay connected with men you love with good friends, then that will trump and fulfill your same-sex desires. Right, but they had to be straight men. But they had to be straight men. They had to be had to be they had to be ever straight. Yes. That's what they were called in Love and Action. They were ever straight. Oh my god, I forgot that that was even a thing. (laughs) Ever straights. That's the only males you could be friends with. The ever straights. The ever straights. I totally, there's so much lingo that I've forgotten. We're going to have to take a a nice shower after this to wash all that crap off. Yeah, so you only, so you could only have friends who were were straight. And so like, so during that period, let's talk about this for a moment, both as ex-gay and then side B. Yes. You struggled to have those relationships. You were encouraged to, uh, as long as they weren't gay, 
for us, it was, very, of course, very easy for all the ex-gays to hang out together. And John Smith said, you know, don't get stuck in an ex-gay ghetto. Right. But um, but what were, tell me a little bit more about these struggles that you had in connecting with these men. What what, what were some of the d- issues? So so it's like there was the constant, there was, there was the constant prescribing of male friendship and the pressure to have male friendship because that's what will inevitably cure me. You know, that's how God will cure me. But then when I would try to make these friendships, I discovered that I was so emotionally volatile because of the clamping down on my sexual orientation, because of my denial of my sexuality, inevitably eroticism would enter into it in some way for me. I've mentioned this several times on this show, but a really wise friend of mine once said that repression is a blunt instrument. And we often want to think of it as a fine instrument with like a scalpel with which you can go into your psyche and just cut out the little pieces that you don't like and the rest is still there. When the reality and what I experienced is that repression is a blunt instrument and you might shut down your sec- your sexual orientation, but you will also shut down your capacity for friendship, for creativity, connectivity, and so on. That's what I discovered and it wasn't and and I had a few good friendships with some women. And then interestingly, a lot of the friendships that I did have with men were were friends who were very gender nonconforming. And so I have I have one great friend who's intersex and presents as male, but used to present as male, but now is identifies as gender fluid and these were the friends that I found a lot of safety in but the may you know the cisgender male friends that the church said would heal me I could never connect with (laughs) when you're saying that I'm thinking about the many attempts that I also made in fact in love and action we were assigned a, a straight male mentor, oh, no. basically. And we would have to <laughs> hang out with this guy. You know, poor guy. You know, like he had his own wife and family. And then now he has this like, you know, adult gay child to, to deal with. He's trying not to be gay. <laughs> you know, like to take fishing and stuff like that. But but the thing that I found was, um, okay, so like these obviously were men who did not approve of people being gay and very much approved of me trying not to be gay. And so there was a lot of conversation about that often in strange ways. So we actually, our relationship was centered around my gayness or me trying not to be gay. So that was the center of the relationship. But I all often found these men, nothing personal, any straight guys listening, but I found them kind of boring. Yeah. And not just because we didn't share the same things, but there was like, as a guy, it was, I think he may have been on guard because I was gay to begin with, but like emotionally we couldn't make those connections. Like there weren't a lot of openings there. And we didn't have shared experiences. We didn't both have wives and family. We didn't have shared interests. We were trying to. And in the end, I found out with my straight mentor, I ended up helping him with some of his marriage problems mm. and his, you know, connecting with his wife who was going through a hard time. And like, I ended up being this, you know, queer emotional support dog in his life. Uh, <laughs> 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 oh my god when he was supposed to be my straight trainer dog wow yeah and you know just the huge irony here is that now that i'm out of the closet and i've come to embrace myself and my fabulous queer masculinity and the fact that i love dick and men in general yeah dick tom harry and tom's dick exactly yeah, i get it now that all that is the case I now have those deep, intimate male friendships with straight men. Matt Langston right. Matt Langston is one of the, you know, I don't know if you've listened to any of my shows with Matt, but Matt's one of my very, very, very best friends. And we have this incredibly intimate friendship. He's super straight. He's straight as a nail. There are several other guys who are like that as well. And I'm still gay. And it hasn't changed right. me or cured me. And in fact, embracing my orientation and embracing who and what I am has allowed me to finally have those male friendships. Right. And and it, at the end of the day, it's not about being gay or straight or bi that, that makes these relationships work. It's that you're not covered up in a cloak and you don't have daggers sticking into you trying to kill parts of yourself because that, I don't care 
what your orientation is. If you are living with shame, if you're hiding something with yourself, you can't be open to any kind of deep relationship at all. So I have a question for you. It's one one that I'm very curious about when I meet people who survive ex-gay ministries, people who are ex-gay survivors. What what were the important steps and moments after coming out, after getting through side B, that helped you to reclaim a new life? That's a great question. Well, I think the first, okay, so the first step for leaving ex-gay was being scared out of it. And, you know, I, I recently told this story in, in my series with Timothy in the uh, Out of the Closet series, where Timothy who was a professor of mine and is now a dear friend, he scared me out of the closet because he told me, you know, this was back when I was like 20 and he saw that I was really struggling and he said, well, let's meet. We went out to coffee and he was very honest. He was brutally honest and he said something that just turned my blood cold. He said, Stephen, I've stopped searching for the answers because at this point in my life, they wouldn't matter anymore. And at least I haven't destroyed the lives of my wife and children, but I'm living half a life is what he said. And like those words are seared into my conscience. And it, it had been dawning on me that ex-gay therapy doesn't work. And I was like, you know what? I don't know what I believe about sexuality. I don't know what I believe about myself or about God, but I know that this doesn't work. And so I'm just going to stop trying to fix myself. And that was my first step. That was the first step for me was being like, this doesn't work. I'm going to move past this. That's all I know. And, and you know, now when I find myself in conversations with people who are in that process, what I often find myself saying is, you know, whether or not you believe God blesses this or not, that's another conversation. For now, let's just establish the fact or work towards the reality that this is something about you that you can't change. And in order to live a full life, you're going to have to come to peace with it. And and so for me, that was the first step. And then after that, it was going through this harrowing relationship when I was in side B, when I was celibate and realizing, you know, I fell in love with this other guy and we, we fell in love with each other. And then of course it ended in disaster and it just destroyed both of us and realizing, you know what, maybe it's because I'm weak. Maybe it's because I'm not spiritually strong enough, but at this point I don't care. I am designed for partnership. Okay, I want to get past all that, though, for a second. This is really important what you're saying, but what I'm curious about is today... Okay. I mean, obviously, nobody has all their shit together, right? But today, it seems like you have a pretty full life. You have interest, new interest, new passions. You spend a lot of you know, time and energy, podcasting, engaging with people with new ideas. You have developed new friendships, new relationships. So... Beyond like intellectually understanding that this doesn't work and mm. you need to accept yourself and even, you know, having that horrible experience with that relationship, what were some key moments, not intellectual moments, but like experiences that you had that helped to to bring some healing to undo some of the damage of conversion therapy? Oh, I see. And it may- Yeah, you know, honestly, I think the biggest thing was just finding my partner, being in relationship with my partner and just suddenly living life and it being so beautifully boring and normal. And for the first time in my life, just waking up in the morning, kissing my boyfriend and making coffee and then going to work and not having to write an entire apologia to defend it. And and even forgetting that he's male. It, it's the most surreal thing, forgetting that my life partner is another man because suddenly who he is, his his person and our relationship trumps what our gender is. And just not thinking about the fact that we are two gay guys, not even thinking about that. To me, he's just Jonathan. To me, mm-hmm. he's my partner. And forgetting that this, that being gay was ever an issue. You know, mm. that that mm. I think did it. Being able to just wake up and be 
boring. <laughs> does that make sense? I don't know if that, I don't know if that it makes does. sense. I mean, that's your story. Yeah. So it makes sense for you. And I think for who you are, where you're at, that made perfect sense. You, you know, I, I, I heard somebody give a talk once years ago at a conference and he said something like, you know, th- you know, therapy of course is incredibly important when you've experienced trauma, taking care of yourself, but probably the most powerful thing that helps us to become ourselves and to find healing in those places that we've been traumatized, it happens through good relationships. Exactly. You know, we live in a, a society where I think people are, it, we struggle to have good relationships. The online myth that we will be closer through the internet, you know, is has been busted. Yes. And, and there's this epidemic rise in depression and one of the greatest simplest things that we can do is just hang out with people and get involved with our communities and volunteer and i you know i i unlike you i i didn't find a partner right away after i came out it was a good over 10 years where i just didn't find somebody and i just wasn't ready. I mean, I was in conversion therapy for 17 years. Yeah. And it was, you know, from the moment I was 17. So it, like, I had a lot of shit that I was carrying. I I realized I needed people in my life. And it was hard because I was scared of people. I was scared of religious people because they had screwed me over. I My heart was like the Grinch, you know, tight and small and bitter because of all that pain. And it took good relationships and friends and, you know, messing up on friendships for sure and dropping out of the friendship because I just got too freaked out and scared. That's you know, what saved my life. And my first play I wrote, Doing Time in the Homo Nomo Halfway House, How I Survived the (laughs) X-Gay Movement, embedded right in the center of the play, I play these nine different characters. And one of them is this British pastor. And the first half of his monologue, you have no idea, idea where he's coming from in regards to the gay thing. It's like in the middle of this whole play about conversion therapy. And he's talking about Lazarus and how Lazarus is sick and he dies and the sisters send word to Jesus, and Jesus delays for days, and Lazarus dies eventually and is put into the tomb. You have no idea where it's going, but in the second half that I tell when this character returns, tell the story how Jesus says, remove the stone, and there's a little, people are upset about this, like, you know, but Lord, by this time he stinketh, as it said in the King James. And Jesus says, you know, Lazarus, come out. And I love that in, in um, the NIV, it says, come out. Because coming out for Lazarus was very much like for us, coming out of this tomb that we put ourselves in and society put us in. But what I find extraordinary about the story is Lazarus is all wrapped up in these grave clothes. He was like a mummy. That's how they prepared the dead for burial, without embalming, of course. And Jesus turns to his disciples who, you know, are always being asked to do weird, impossible things under very strange circumstances. And he says take off his grave clothes and let him go. And I'm like, you know, that is not a gift from the afterlife that I want to unwrap. You know, I mean, if I was asked to do this, like what is under those bandages? This dude's <laughs> right. been dead for four days. That to me is so much what it's been about for me is I've had to do my work to recover from conversion therapy. I've had to take responsibility for my role in it, knowing that I wasn't a pure victim. I kept putting myself in those situations but I also was a victim at the same time. I had to, you know, have had to get good therapy and and all, but I've also so benefited from people unwrapping me and helping me to become me. And that, you know, that's the gift that we can give each other is is that one of just helping people just become more themselves and not just come out gay, but come out as themselves. Absolutely. And even if it doesn't fit with our pretty picture of what a gay person should be, you know, if they have interest or even politics that we don't like. It's like, whatever, you know, let people be themselves. You know, and one of the things that I feel like is often missed, and it's what strikes me so very much about this, you know, extraordinary LGBTQIA community that we're in, is there's there are these categories of identity but once you really get deep into these communities you discover the great diversity of individuals and that to me is what's beautiful and somehow you miss that if we aren't allowed to also express our gender and sexual identity 
the individual is stifled. And if we don't push ourselves to experience something that's different from us, I mean, that's what I love about LGBTQ film festivals and that you can see lots of different representations. But if as a white cis gay guy, I'm all only going to movies about white gay cis men, it may be affirming and beautiful, but I'm not necessarily going to learn something new. It's when I go to the films about, you know, the black lesbian moms and, you know, yes. a film about, you know, trans bikers and, you know, that that it really expands that when I first finally came out, I was still living in Memphis because that's where Love and Action was. And I came out shortly after that, like I crawled out of this bunker like place <laughs> yeah. and I knew nothing and I was terrified. And I was so fortunate that there was this gay pastor in town who I, he just sort of recognized that there was there was something, some creativity to me that needed to be expressed. And he said, you know, Judy Shepard's coming to town. This was very shortly after Matthew Shepard was murdered. And his mom, Judy Shepard, was coming to town. It was a big event because the mayor of Memphis was going to be there the first time a mayor of Memphis ever attended a, a gay event. And he said, I would love it if you would write a poem about the community here and what it's like. I said, well... I don't know the community. I've just came out and I'm from Connecticut originally. What do I know? He said, well, let me give you some names of people and you can talk to them and interview them and find out about their lives. And what a delicious, incredible, diverse menu of people he introduced me to who were so different from me. And it really, I just, every interview, it's just sort of undid a different misconception I had about being gay and just cracked open my brain to the incredible diversity of who we are yeah and and that to me is trying to articulate something here and i don't know how well i'm doing it but you know just some of the most extraordinary individuals that i've met some of the most extraordinary unique talented wise people i've met have been within this lgbtqia world and what often grieves me is that from the outside and within the church there is this flattening of that individuality into these transgressions of gender roles does that make sense oh yeah definitely and and you know it's the great irony because they are also the exact same people who are going on and on and on about the the harms of identity politics and how you know we you see we see them as group identity and not as individuals but what i but i see them actually the ones perpetrating that and they're the ones missing the great diversity within these identities and they've created this stupid phrase, the gay lifestyle, yes. as if it's a one single thing. And so what I like to do, and I encourage anyone listening to do this too, on Twitter, I do the hashtag, hashtag my gay lifestyle, where I'll just talk about something I do, like going to Quaker meeting, making a vegan lavender blueberry smoothie, you know, working out, whatever it is, and just say my gay li lifestyle to kind of just show like, well, our gay lifestyles or trans or whatever lifestyle it is, it's just like, it's just us. And it's... It's not like this big monolith of silliness that some that somebody in Colorado Springs devised of who we are. It's just ridiculous. But we get into the trap too, right? We can yeah. get into the trap of like what gay people like and what what music we listen to and that's why I just encourage people to just really come out fully as ourselves as free and full as possible. You know what I'm hearing throughout this entire conversation is that our time in in the ex-gay world had this horrific flattening effect on our lives. And it took this incredibly colorful, multi-dimensional thing that is a human being, and it flattens it down into a single frame, flattens it down onto a single surface, almost like into a piece of paper, you know, having to conform to specific behaviors and beliefs and stereotypes and the life after ex-gay therapy and and you know at some point we we really need to talk more about recovering from ex-gay therapy because even though ex-gay therapy is on the decline there's still a ton of people out there walking around with those wounds the the rec the act of you know the life of recovering from ex-gay therapy is is letting that open up again, letting that multidimensional, beautiful, you know, nuanced totality of who you are kind of 
open back up. Right. But it doesn't just happen. No. It takes real effort. And I sadly have met lots of ex-gay survivors, like, you know, thousands through the years, through the work that we've done. And there are sometimes people who are living this half-life and they're, they say they're out, but it's really to a small community online, maybe a handful of friends, their parents, they don't talk about where they're at. So it's a total don't ask, don't tell. The parents know they're not still in conversion therapy, but they're hoping that they're not gay. And it's this really, like you say, flattened half-life that they're still continuing to live. And I find that they're still obsessed with the clobber passages, trying to figure out, you know, what do I do about these five passages that condemn me? And going to every talk they could possibly do, reading every book that deals with that, and still trying to be in the same church that they've always been in or a church similar to it, still desperately trying to get the attention and acceptance from straight people, including their parents, who simply refuse to accept them. And it, it's I find it very sad, and I understand I have a lot of compassion for it, and I think for some people, they're going to be choose to stick there until their parents die, and then maybe when their parents die, they will finally be able to step out and be do something. But I, I think that after experiencing such a deadening, traumatic experience we have to really express a will for life and for joy and for pleasure and new interests. And, and it means sometimes a break from, from the old ways and old relationships, you know, even sometimes parents who it's like, if you can't accept me for who I am, then it's dehumanizing to be in a relationship with you. I relate so much to everything you just said, because for years I was that person. I was an advocate and apologist for for gay people within the church, which is important work, and I'm glad I did it. And I and I did some of my I think my best writing during that time. I'm very proud of a lot of the work I did and the writing that I did during that time. However, it's almost like my entire identity became wrapped up in what the church thought of me, and I realized that I was still trapped. I was still brainwashed, you know, and it it took me just completely burning out. I mean, it took me just flaming out in 2015 or two, 2000, 2014. I mean, just epically imploding because I was on this runaway train of self-loathing, even though I had come out, even though I had presumably left all that behind. And I was obsessed with getting the church on board with me. And I got some of the church on board with me, but I realized that it was ultimately a codependent relationship. You know, and I read all those books. It was good for me. I'm glad I read those books. But I'm now at the point where I'm letting myself forget it. I've given all those books away. I've given all my books away to, I've, you know, to other people who, who I feel like might need them. And now I'm letting myself forget the theological arguments willfully. I, I want to forget them because I want to live my life now. And in, in my case, I struggle too with the Bible, of course, because I was taught to read it in such a way that it always condemned that gay part of me. So even reading a psalm, which seems, you know, you think, oh, what, what could hurt you in the psalms this way? But it's like, you know, blessed are the righteous. And to me, the righteous were the heterosexuals yes. and the repentant <laughs> homosexuals. And so I couldn't go near it for the longest time. And, and it was hard because I had so much of it memorized. So it wasn't like I could just walk away from it. It was rattling around in my brain. And what, what definitely helped me was when I stopped obsessing about the clobber passages and recognizing there's no way you could ever come up with an ironclad argument that my old pastor and my best friend's mom would ever buy, right? There's just always suspicion because, you know, that's the, the reality of these scriptures. Like they can be interpreted in multiple ways. But instead I'm like, well, let me find positive stories of gender and sexual minorities beyond the whole Jonathan and David narrative, which, you know, people have, have talked about a lot, but like, who else is there? And they're just some amazing characters. Not that I'm encouraging people to re-embrace the Bible or even revisit it, but I think for harm reduction and to help our opponents see 
Here's a different story. You've been shoving this, these five passages down my throat for a long time. Let me tell you a story of someone you've overlooked. The first recorded baptism in the early church. The Holy Spirit tells Philip to go talk to this one. And that person sitting on a chariot was a rich civil servant from Africa, from Ethiopia, who had just been to the temple because this was a person of faith a foreigner, a person of faith, and who was a sexual and gender minority, was a eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch is the first recorded baptism in the early church. And so to lots of folks who struggle with the Bible, gay and not gay, I'll ask them, so what do you think the Ethiopian eunuch looked like? And what did this eunuch sound like? And why were they so curious about the identity of someone who's suffering so much after they themselves have lived a life of suffering? without being able to have children in a society that at some ways revered them, but also reviled them. What's going on in that story? And it's so lovely having this conversation about this person who's clearly instrumental in the early church history, who is clearly a sexual and gender minority and a foreigner, like the ultimate outsider, you know, but I think beyond the Bible, I think for those of us who have been beaten down and oppressed. Our liberation comes from also finding new books and new stories, new activities, new obsessions, new habits, um, new hobbies, and that, you know, filling our lives with new interest is so critical because the old ones failed us and the old ones are toxic. Yeah. I think that's a great note to end on. We have been talking for over an hour and it has flown by. uh, And I definitely think we have a lot more to talk about. You're a fascinating person. And I am so grateful that I get to finally talk to you because, you know, you've been just one of those people who's helped me over the years. And I think you've helped a lot of other people as well. So it's an honor talking to you. Where can people find you? Everywhere. If anyone can't find me, I don't know. You haven't looked. I'm like on every possible social media, including Pinterest. On Pinterest, I actually have a board called If Jesus Had Pinterest, What Would Jesus Pin? (laughs) He's really into sandals, turns out. Um, I'm on uh, Twitter. It's P2Sun on Twitter. Um, On, of course, Facebook and Instagram and all that. My website is petersontoscano.com. If you struggle to find me, just look for like queer Bible scholar. I often come up. Uh, if you look at like queer climate change, I often come up with that too, because I'm always looking at queer responses to climate change. But um, yeah, and I, I love hearing from folks and hearing your stories as well. And I have a monthly podcast that I do myself. I love this format, the podcast format. And my monthly show is called Citizens Climate Radio. And I look at really interesting, fresh approaches to climate change, something I'm terribly curious about. So I'll interview a veterinarian who helps talks about how climate change affects our pets. I interviewed an Hmm. indie race driver who's concerned about climate change. I look at climate comedy, not your normal gloom and doom, scare the snot out of you, make you feel guilty, shameful podcast. I learned enough from conversion therapy and the church to know that that doesn't work. We need to fight for something. We did not even touch on the climate stuff. and, And that's a whole other conversation that I want to have with you at some point. Let's do it. Yeah, let's definitely do it. And I've got some great guests for you. So I'm going to send you a list of some wonderful people like Liam Hooper. And, oh, please. Um, yes. Yeah, who's in North Carolina, not too far from you, actually. Okay. And um, Makisha Kinsey. Uh, yeah, lots of, like, lots of folks. I would absolutely love that. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Peterson. This has been absolutely wonderful. This hour has flown by, and we'll definitely be talking again. That's our show for this week. Before we wrap up here, I just have a small favor to ask. If you enjoy this show, if you find yourself looking forward to it every single week, just go to iTunes and please just leave me a five-star review. You don't even have to write a re- write a review. Just leave me five stars because here's the deal. A lot of guests, when I ask them onto the show, they don't even listen to the show. They just go to iTunes and look at how many reviews I have. It really, really, really does help. And so if you enjoy this show and you want me to keep getting awesome 
guests, then please leave me a review. There are other ways to support this show. You can share it with your friends. You can write a blog responding to it, share it on social media. Those are all great ways to help me spread this show. Also, my Patreon is now live. Go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long for $5 a month. You get access to a second weekly podcast, The House of Heretics podcast, in which Justin and I have very unedited conversations about life and faith and my trip to seeing a, a psychic at, <laughs> at a casino and theology and all sorts of stuff. Well, the music is by the Jelly Rocks from the album Bang and Whimper. You can find it online wherever you listen to music. And the artwork is by Justin Caleb Bryant. And I will see you next week. Thank you.